This episode of The Spiritually Sassy Show was brought to you by Higher Dose. Elevate your mood, promote a healthy glow, support long-term health benefits, and lift your spirit with Higher Dose's at-home wellness tools that use nature-inspired technologies to release a dose of your feel-good chemicals like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins naturally. Higher Dose's infrared, PEMF, and red light devices elevate your health and beauty rituals while their collection of body products boosts the benefits so you feel more rejuvenated, refreshed, grounded, and glowing. Ready to test the best biohacking technologies and feel better daily? Visit higherdose.com and enter the code SAW15 to save 15% on your first order. That's higherdose.com and enter the code SAH15 to save 15% on your first order and prepare to get high on your own supply. And now, on to the show. Oh my goodness. Welcome back to the Spiritually Sassy Show, where we are redefining what it means to be spiritual in the modern world. I'm your host, Sade Simone. I'm a mystic, an artist, transformational speaker, two-time best-selling author, soon to be three times, because I'm, I have a new book coming out later this year. It comes out December 5th, 2023, and December 5th is the day of my birthday. Hey, um, I'm also the creator of the Somatic Activated Healing Method, and I'm so grateful and excited that you're here for a new episode. And remember, if you love the show, rate, review, and subscribe to stay in touch with me. You can uh, message me on Instagram or TikTok or head over to my website, sadisimone.com. Our guest today is Eric Dumpa. Anderson. First of all, I have been lurking him, trying to get to know him. I found out about him through one of my teachers and I was like listening to this podcast I did together and I was blown away. Eric is an author, is the author of Unseen Beings, How We Forgot the World is More Than Human, coming out this May. He's a scholar, practitioner, a teacher of Tibetan medicine and Tibetan Buddhism. He's a graduate of the Sheng Shung Institute of Tibetan Medicine and is trained in ritual arts, and he's a trained ritual arts specialist with 20 years of experience in the Nyingma Chod traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. Casual! If you know Buddhism, if you know this mystical, esoteric side of Buddhism, you're it, for those of you who know this tantric part of the path, you're, you're listening to this and you're like, holy shit, who is this dude? Okay, welcome to the show, my dear. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, it's such an honor and I'm so thrilled to meet you and to be here with you and to have a nice little chat. Yes, a great chat. Um, well, first of all, let's get into, into it immediately. Let's do it. Talk, talk to me about the book. You have a new book coming out May 2023, Unseen Beings, How We Forgot the World is More Than Human. Like, go at it because this book is so vital. Yeah, so this was, this has been, it's been a process. This has been 
uh, I've been writing it for the past couple of years. It just went to print like three days ago. So it's like, there's a real physical version of it somewhere in the world right now, which is crazy. Uh, and then, yeah, it'll be published uh, and you can get it places at the end of May. Uh, but this has really been sort of, um, it's, it's been the confluence of many different streams of, of influence of knowledge that have impacted and guided me throughout my life. Uh, obviously, Tibetan Buddhism is a big part of that. Tibetan medicine is also a big part of that. Uh, and those were really some of the like foundational seeds that sort of grew into the ideas of the book. It's essentially, it's unseen beings, how we forgot the world is more than human. And that is like, like it says on the tin, that is part of what I intended to do with it. Uh, I've always been really interested in particularly the aspects of Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan medicine that have to do with what we would term nature or ecology or the more than human natural world, uh, including and especially, you know, paradigms of nature spirits, you know, beings like the Lu and the Nyan and the Gyalpo and Taurang, etc., of which there are many many, many, many in the Tibetan tradition. And I've always been really fascinated by them. And they were really like the original unseen beings that this book was intended to talk about. But as my research deepened with it, and as I went farther into the sort of ecological side of things, I began to realize that like, there's a lot of unseen beings in our world that are not invisible. They're not supernatural. The only reason that they've been unseen is because we've basically relegated them to this secondary status and objectified them and made them uh, resources instead of beings. And I, my experience as a Tibetan medicine practitioner, you know, I, I've worked a lot with plants and I've had, you know, various kinds of relationships with plants over time. But for a long time, I didn't really appreciate the fact that they are beings in their own right. Uh, it was really encountering the works of plant neurobiologists like Stefano Mancuso, Monica Gagliano, that really opened my eyes to this rather shocking realization that plants are multi-sensory information processing beings who have internal lives and retain memories and make decisions and have relationships and, and all kinds of things and communicate with one another. And that really sort of rattled my, my brain a little bit. And especially coming from the Buddhist tradition, for all of its, you know, many virtues, it's quite plant blind, uh, among other things. And, you know, the Buddha, as we're told, didn't believe that plants are sentient beings. And that was sort of the first major, I don't know, reflection point for me to really look more critically at my own tradition and start to look at things in a slightly different way to try to, you know, re-see or learn to, to see the beings that I myself had, had failed to see. So the book is essentially, it's an attempt to explain how we became using we quite loosely here because it's really specific cultural and social traditions, how we became a human-dominated anthropocentric world. What is the root of anthropocentrism? Uh, this philosophical idea that humans are at the very center of the universe and that we are above and apart from everyone else uh, and fundamentally separate from nature. And that question turned up a lot of other questions and came up with some sort of interesting answers, some of which surprised me a bit. Uh, so in the book, I try to sort of you know navigate that 
that for folks and, and you know, deconstruct the history of anthropocentrism and how it ultimately led us into our current climate crisis. Mm. But I try to do it from multiple different angles. This book has history in it. It has religion. It has philosophy. It has science, plant neurobiology for good measure. There's mushrooms in it. There's mythology in it. You know, I, I try to take a lot of approaches based on the many different fields that have really nourished my practice over the course of my own life. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's, you know, I feel like it's sort of timely. We were just saying before, before we started, like I had very much the same experience when I first started writing this book, you know, writing a book uh, sort of beyond conventional conversations surrounding environmentalism, like really going into a more of a deep ecology place of looking at the experiences of non-human beings and taking them seriously. I felt like it was going to be way too much for people, like not, you know, it didn't feel like we were sort of ready for those conversations. Even something like plant sentience just felt very fringe and difficult for, you know, potentially for people to get. But mm -hmm. since I started writing it, I swear, like, it's everywhere. You know, like David Attenborough documentaries and, and podcasts and celebrities are talking about it. You know, you have so many folks that are really starting to engage, I think, more critically with the idea of nature and ecology. And that's really important because if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to move forward with any sort of positive results. And, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who, who thinks that, you know, we can save nature, that we're going to fix everything, or that we can sustain our current way of living because we can't. Uh, and as long as that's what we mean when we talk about sustainability, it's not going to lead to good things and we're not going to, you know, get anywhere good. Um, mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that folks are sort of, you know, that there's a hunger for this now and that uh, people are ready to have these kinds of conversations. But I, I should say also in the book, I, I talk about Tibetan medicine. I talk about Tibetan Buddhism. A big influence for me was, you know, going through the pandemic as a Tibetan medicine practitioner and looking at the ways that people were talking about it beyond the sort of, you know, surface level stuff, but more about the ways that a viral pandemic, a zoonotic infection is intimately related to climate change and the ways that we've totally avoided acknowledging that and talking about it explicitly. You know, there were a lot of even environmentalists that were saying like, oh, I wish that we could dedicate this kind of attention to climate change. And it was like, this is that. Like, what are you talking? This is, they're literally, they're a part of the same problem. This is a manifestation. It's a symptom of this underlying chronic disease. So I, I try to deal with that in the book and also some of the ways that Buddhism approaches non-human Say more being. about that, Eric. I'm like fascinated. I, I knew the moment you got on here, I was going to sit back and be like, please educate <laughs> me for an hour. <laughs> Say more about how it's a climate crisis. It's a symptom of a climate crisis, the COVID pandemic. Like explain that yeah. more. So it's it's interesting because when I was studying Tibetan medicine, I did like a, a five-year course in Tibetan medicine and then did half a year of internship in Nepal, and I've been practicing for a few years. So now I'm, I'm really more interested in kind of the academic side and also teaching. But going through that experience with the Tibetan medicine background was interesting because we have this whole classification of a certain kind of disorders in Tibetan medicine, which are known as dunne or provocation disorders. And these are essentially 
illnesses which are caused by external beings, illnesses that we experience that have some sort of influence that comes from outside of us, from other kinds of of organisms, essentially. And it's traditionally understood that there's many different classifications of dunne. There's certain manifestations which are primarily psychological or psychiatric in nature, and those are usually the ones that people talk about, but they're not, in my opinion, the most interesting. Uh, They do, you know, there's elements of like uh, certain disorders which really resemble kinds of possession. Uh, There's others that don't but have other more psychiatric symptoms, but there's others that are very physiological. And of the physiological ones, infectious diseases, contagious diseases are considered to be one of them. Uh, Infectious diseases are traditionally understood in a Tibetan medical context and some other Asian medical contexts as being a kind of disorder that is directly involved with non-human beings, usually with unseen beings, which like, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> but, you know, quite specifically with the unseen beings that inhabit the natural landscape. So when we transgress against nature's boundaries, using the word nature quite loosely, which we can come back to at some point, um, but when we transgre- transgress against the boundaries of those non-human beings, they can become sick. Uh, when we pollute their waters, when we destroy their soil, when we chop down trees and, and destroy forests, when we pollute the air and so on, we can make them sick or upset, and then in return, they can make us sick. So it's traditionally understood that if you have some sort of an epidemic or pandemic infection, there is going to be a root cause that is essentially based on an unpleasant relationship, an unethical and imbalanced relationship between human and non-human beings. So of course, on a strictly scientific basis, this is this is true. I mean, SARS viruses specifically, they live in bat colonies, and they don't actually make the bats sick. That's one of the really interesting thing about a lot of these uh, zoonotic diseases is that in bat colonies, SARS and you know diseases like COVID nineteen don't make bats sick. They just travel through the bat colony. They go into a bat. Uh, they you know reproduce through the bat's cells, and then they can pass on to another bat. And in the meantime, the first bat will get rid of the the virus and they'll go on their merry way. So in that way, they can exist sort of indefinitely in these, uh, you know, bat colonies as a part of their community. And in doing so, they actually act as a kind of protector. An interesting thing about viruses, much like the, you know, unseen nature spirits that we talk about in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and Tibetan medical tradition is that they don't destroy their own environments. They don't destroy their own ecosystems. Uh, They cause harm to beings who invade upon their ecosystems. Uh, especially rival predators that might threaten their sort of flock, uh, in this case being bats. So when we look at, you know, whether, whatever the provenance of COVID-19 specifically was, the SARS family of, of viruses that it belongs to is very much a, a virus that exists in animal colonies in nature. They have their own world and that world is necessarily not ours. You know, that's a great example of a sensitive place in Tibetan medicine or in Tibetan Buddhism in Yensa, which is a sensitive spirited location, a place where humans really need to tread very carefully and where we ideally need to sort of let those beings have their space as much as possible. Wow. Wow. Oh my God. This is so incredible. Oh my goodness. I mean, like these are the kinds of conversations and it's that so I, true and it's so simple right. and it's like, it's, it's violation of boundaries leads to, to, you know, you get a backlash and yeah. But and we've done this, and I mean, I'm sitting in an apartment building, you know, three blocks from the ocean. Like, hello, I have caused violence to the environment, right. you know. 
And this Fuck. is the thing that it's not like some sort of it's not like punishment from the gods or anything like that, where it can be sort of, you know, divvied up according to people's, you know, karmic responsibility. It's really not about that. It's about relationship. So, you know, unfortunately, the the consequences of climate change, the consequences of transgressing against nature's boundaries and disrupting, you know, the biosphere and the, the microbiome, it's not going to directly principally affect those that are mostly responsible. It's going to disproportionately, at least in the beginning, affect folks that are living in these sensitive areas that have been plundered and colonized and industrialized and destroyed. And it's not necessarily their faults. You know, the folks that are really, that are getting rich off of the process, they are somewhat protected in, in certain ways because this isn't, you know, it's, it's not a supernatural you know, delineation of consequence. It's a, an, an effect of just relationship. It's it's mm-hmm. really direct embodied relationship between beings. Mm-hmm. And we forgot the that you know life is constantly communicating to us, with us, for us, through us. But we through this term that I was introduced uh, to it by you, anthropocentrism. We have completely put ourselves on this pedestal. Can you speak to like, why do we see nature and these unseen beings that are living in nature as second-class citizens or like not sentient and not worthy and like they have nothing to teach us or offer us? And, you know, it's interesting because when you brought, you, you know, imprinted my mind a week or two before I went into this 30-day silent retreat and in this 30 day, you know, the audience knows if they've been listening uh, consistently to every episode that halfway through their retreat, I had to leave because of the medical emergency with my mom. Um, but one of the things that I kept, you know, sort of nagging at, at the, at the Gesha, uh, we're studying with this, you know, Gesha, for those who don't know, in the, in the Tibetan Buddhist sort of esoteric tradition, it, it's someone who spent 21 years in a monastery practicing to have this title. So God bless, you know, him and his effort. And he is an incredible teacher. And I kept going at it, trying to figure out like, what is it that that makes humans, you know, to backtrack a little bit, there's a part of the, the process in the studies that we did that's called the precious human rebirth. And we should pray and be grateful and so celebratory that we have this precious human rebirth. And, and that means that we are the top of the chain. And, and then I was loving it and I was happy. But your voice, strangely enough, right, we, we're, we were strangers up until now, kept coming up saying like, wow, this isn't right. There's something here that isn't true or right. And perhaps the, the doctrine has been colonized. Perhaps the Buddhist doctrine has been indoctrinated, poisoned to kind of perpetuate this view that humans are better. And, you know, after my mom's death, I'm seeing her in, in the, what do you call the little bird that comes around? Uh, Beja flor, we call in Portuguese. I don't know the hummingbird, hummingbird in, in English. You know, I'm seeing her in, in animals. I'm seeing her in plants. I'm in, and I see that as like the highest God, the most high speaking to me, not as like, oh, poor mom, you know, she's a hummingbird. Like, so it, it is very interesting to look at the doctrine through once you have been educated with this anthropocentrism, I can't even say this fucking word, but speak to it. Like, what's the history behind the word and when did it take hold and, 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 and how does it impact our, our mind, you know, and our relationship? Am I making yeah. sense? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. It's, 
I, I yeah, first the the precious human birth thing I find really fascinating because I've gone through a similar process without having, you know, trained in tantric Buddhism and having done Gundros and so on. Like I'm, you know, I was uh, very much indoctrinated with the idea that a human birth is the only birth worth having. And furthermore, like in the Tibetan tradition, you get all of this sort of like justifications for certain kinds of behaviors and, and lifestyles, for instance, eating a lot of meat, which a lot of Tibetans tend to do even in exile or in, in diaspora. Um, but under the presupposition that the best possible life that an animal can have is to be killed and fed to a tantric Buddhist practitioner, which I really struggled with. And I you know, now I just reject that outright. But I really struggled with that sort of ideology and the, the you know, the method of justification for it. But it sort of goes hand in hand with this, this concept of the precious human birth, which I find Machik Leptrin's approach in the Chud tradition to really be a lot more generative, a lot more um, animistic, a lot more grounded, more maternal, uh, more feminist. You know, there's so many aspects to her approach that I find to be really quite superior to some of the other more institutional paradigms that arose in Tibet, uh, you know, especially over the past eight, 900 years. So, but to the anthropocentrism point, it's, re- it's interesting because even the idea of nature versus humanity, that there's this fundamental divide. And on one side, there's the anthropos, there's the human, and on the other side, there's nature. That itself is just a cultural idea that doesn't exist in the vast majority of human cultural traditions. And for the vast majority of our human history, there was no such idea. That idea specifically arose in Western European philosophical movements. And it arose alongside this notion that the anthropos, the human, is the only kind of being in the world, at least, that is endowed with a a sort of precious human rational soul. This rational soul, according to philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, is what gives us the ability for, you know, the capacity for lucidity, for authentic consciousness, awareness, um, for, you know, the exercise of free will. And it's also the only soul that passes on after death, that has any immortal uh, sort of existence. According to Plato and Aristotle, the sort of lesser beings, non-human animals and plants, they only possess lesser souls. So uh, plants possess the nutritive soul, which is just this animating force. The word in Greek was anima, which is literally, you know, what animates us. So plants only have this nutritive animating force, which has no internal experience, no sensory perception. Uh, it only allows them to feed and reproduce and grow. And then animals have that as well as this sensitive soul that allows them to be able to move around. But according to the ancient Greek philosophers, animals and plants have no interior dimension of subjective ex- experience. They have no sensory awareness. They can't feel pain. They don't have thoughts. They don't have memories. They don't have emotions. Uh, and they don't go on after death. They don't have any sort of immortal existence. So once they die, they're gone. This was really a, a main justification for a lot of our relationships with animals in later uh, Western European traditions. Even though these weren't the only games in town. You know, it's like we don't have the majority of materials that were written during these, you know, the classical era. Uh, And, you know, most Latin texts that once existed, we only have 1% of what remains. But it's sort of a question of like, it's not the best voices that get 
you know, sort of uh, amplified and it's not the best ideas that get carried on through time. It's just the ones that are allowed to persist. And Aristotle and Plato's ideas were really foundations for Western society. And when Christianity came onto the scene, which was already founded on an anthropocentric theological basis, Genesis, the idea that God has given man uh, specifically, <laughs> all other beings, all other life forms uh, to dominate and to control and to exploit at their will. So when that came together with Aristotelianism, you get this sort of perfect storm of an absolute anthropocentric philosophy. Uh, and this, you know, this was very um, influential on the way that we think about the world in Western European and Euro-American traditions. Uh, this over time, you know, over the following like, you know, 1500 plus years, various philosophers and, and theorizers have sort of built upon this. Thomas Aquinas uh, was a big figure in the sort of marriage of Aristotelianism and, and uh, Christianity. And more recently, Rene Descartes, who's really the primary reason that most Westerners today reject the notion of animal or plant sentience. Uh, he was the one as an Aristotelian and a hardcore Christian who was also a like dog torturer. He abused dogs in public to try to convince people that they were just biological machines and that they don't actually have any authentic interior dom domain of experience. Uh, so he was quite a monster, but he's the father of modern philosophy. <laughs> Yay! So, so this is, you know, these are the reasons that we think, for instance, that non-human animals don't have an experience, that there's nothing going on behind the eyes. They're just dead inside. They're just machines. It's not because of science. Lord knows science does not think that. Scientifically, we are absolutely positive that at least animals are fully sentient, conscious beings. And now the, the research is pushing us to even recognize that plants and probably even slime molds and microbes are information processing sensory organisms with some sort of domain of what Buddhists would call awareness. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Wow. And then given that it's, since that's been imprinted and, and indoctrinated into our mind, it's very easy for us to treat the environment like shit. Precisely. And this was, you know, the problem, the problem, one of the many problems with Plato and Aristotle is that they didn't just institute anthropocentrism, but also androcentrism, the centricity of men. Uh, so, I mean, their whole idea, their worldview was that it wasn't even that every human has a rational human soul. Only some humans have a rational human soul. And the other humans are basically not much better than, than cattle or, or livestock. So this mentality, the, the, the group of the human, the anthropos, that's always been a highly political identity. It's not species-based in reality. We have throughout history, especially Western European societies, have been very comfortable deeming that some humans are not really fully human, and therefore they get tossed in with the rest as a resource which can be exploited freely because they, there's an idea that it was given to humanity by God, uh, by a single you know, overlord who provided these things as resources for us, as things, uh, not as persons. But mm. 
this is different. This is the outlier. When you look at all of the many, 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 many philosophical and cultural traditions across the world since the beginning of humankind, this is the outlier. This is the one group of ideas that is not like the rest. Virtually everyone else for the majority of our human history has agreed that not only are all humans persons, but that also all animals are persons, all plants and fungi are persons, and that there's additional persons that are properly unseen, guardians of of forests and mountains and rivers and oceans and so on. Indeed, they're not even really unseen. You can see their bodies. It's just that we see them and we think, oh, that's just resources that can be tapped and exploited. We don't, or a place that is our home. We don't see it as a community of beings. We don't see them as persons that we can have relationships with. And that's really, that's really fucked us up deeply. Wow. I want to bring something into the mix that you kind of just quickly brushed by. You spoke about the Chud tradition. I, um, you know, it's interesting how like a year before, maybe like a year and a half before my mom's death, I was, you know, studying what one of my teachers, um, Venerable Tenzin Choki, um, you know, she created this uh death and dying uh, process for hosp- hospitals all around the world by the guidance of, of Lama Zopa Rinpoche. So I was doing that training and I was, you know, um, signing up for uh, training with, to be a death doula. And then through this research, I stumbled upon Chud and um, I bought the book. I asked the guru for an empowerment, haven't heard back yet, you know, <laughs> so I'm waiting for that empowerment, honey, as you're listening, I know my voice is reaching you. I need that empowerment, honey. I mean, I don't know if I have the inner stability to practice that yet, but every time I open it up, the 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 booklet and the book, I'm so moved by it. So explain to us what is Chud and how does that relate to us seeing unseen beings in a different light? How could that potentially be the antidote to anthropocentrism? Fuck yeah. that word. Yeah. It will never get easy for All me right. to say. There you go. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, yeah. Chud is, Chud is fascinating. You know, what, what we have to understand with Tibetan Buddhism is that Tibetan Buddhism came to Tibet around the 7th century, 8th century, and there were little streams of influence that were established in that time. But the real Tibetan Buddhist renaissance happened around the 11th to 13th centuries. That was when a lot of really great masters came around, a lot of important works were written, a lot of important traditions or, or lineages were established, and older traditions also renegotiated their place within Tibetan Buddhism in response to those evolutions. So this was a really important time, and a time where Tibetan Buddhism wasn't yet established in the way that we know it. Uh, So even though there's earlier waves of Tibetan Buddhism, it was really around Machik's time. She was born in uh, 1055, so she was in the middle of the 11th century. This is really when things were starting to sort of come to a head. And this is also the time where Buddhism had been in Tibet long enough that it was really seeping in. You know, we see this dynamic in modern, the modern influx of Buddhism into the West, where, you know, our sort of timeline is is much shorter than theirs was at this point. But you can see that, you know, it comes over, people sort of try to assimilate to the orthodox approach, try to, in certain ways, you know, culturally assimilate elements of Tibetan Buddhist cultures or other Buddhist cultures from Asia. And there's this sort of cosplay at the beginning. And then it starts to seep in. And then you can start to get folks like yourself who have really integrated and assimilated it and allowed it to manifest in a more sort of authentic way that can really 
speak to the cultural climate in which it exists. And this is what was happening during Machik's life, during her, her era. So what she did was she established this new tradition of Buddhism, which she called the Chud tradition, the tradition of severance. And she was very clear about the fact that this was a Buddhist tradition that came from Tibet, that came from her, that didn't come from India. It wasn't based on the teachings. It was based on the teachings of the Buddha, but it wasn't like the Buddha sat there and sat down and wrote a Chud practice and like sent it off to Tibet. She was like, no, this, you know, most Buddhism came from India to Tibet, but this one is going to go from Tibet to India. And I think it's really magnificent how boldly she established her teachings based on the knowledge that she had done the work. She had spent the time in retreat on pilgrimage, studying with all the different masters, but she had her own insights. She had her own visionary experiences. And that's really what primarily informed her approach to uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And people dragged her for it. I mean, she had folks coming from India that were trying to tell her that she was a charlatan and that she needed to stand down because obviously this isn't real because all Buddhism comes from India all men obviously trying to attack her, especially as a woman who did not attach her auth- uh, you know, auth- authenticity based on the throne of some man. Uh, she was really, really remarkable and a genuinely historical figure, which isn't always the case. And I think it's important in this instance because she's really a, a magnificent person, mythologized to an extent, but a magnificent example of a powerful historical Tibetan woman and the founder of this tradition. So basically her practice lineage it was it was once much larger. There was a lot more involved, but now, um, unfortunately, her own sort of you know the the integrity of her tradition as one cohesive whole has sort of diminished. But on the bright side, it was assimilated into many different Tibetan Buddhist schools. So a lot of people do her practices. Uh, but the basic premise of her most important practice, her most popular practice, which is the lujin, or the body offering, which is what we call chud usually, uh, is that this is a practice of severing through, severing our, our fixation to a sense of self on a most essential level, cutting through dualism, cutting through egocentricity in order to allow ourselves to awaken. But there are also elements of this practice that allow us to exchange, make sorts of energetic exchanges with the beings around us, to cancel out karmic debts, to make offerings to unseen beings, uh, to heal aspects of our environment, of, you know, non-human environments, of, of sensitive places and the beings that live there. Uh, and on the most sort of outer level, it's also a process of cutting through fear. It's a process of going into the places and the situations that scare us, that cause us to squeeze ourselves, to hold on to ourselves more tightly so that we can then go through the process of releasing. Uh, it's this dynamic called dulshu, which is disciplined engagement. It's suppressing, or not suppressing, it's overcoming and subduing our, our self-clinging so that we can enter into uncontrived conduct. We can enter into a, a deeper sense of yogic engagement. And the reason that this practice I, is so interesting to me is that it's fundamentally animistic uh, in a very, very direct way. And I think even though people have argued, you know, it's shamanic, it's not shamanic, yada, yada, I think that's sort of beside the, que- beside the point. It is animistic. Machik teaches very clearly to an audience that 
understands that they live in a more than human world. There's no question about it. They know that they live in a more than human world. They know that they share the planet, they share their environment with animals and with plants and with spirits and gods and, and you know, flesh-eating spirits and beautiful spirits, all kinds of different beings. And that the best way to relate with them isn't to worship the gods, it isn't to fight the demons, it's not to project divinity or evil onto them and then try to deal with them on some sort of, you know, supernatural level. It's simply to recognize that they're sentient beings and to offer them nourishment, to, you know, approach them with compassion. It's considered to be the most radically compassionate practice in Tibetan Buddhism, even though people think of it as being this like wrathful ritual. Everyone talks about it as like, oh, you know, it's like an exorcism and, you know, it's all about these scary things and, you know, sort of attacking demons and so on. It is nothing of the sort. Uh, it's absolutely nothing of the sort. It's a radically pacifistic, uh, peaceful practice. And the way that this is done in the Chid tradition is uh, you imagine you, you self-arise as a deity, you leave your corporeal form behind, and then you transform in through visualization your corpse into nourishment for non-human beings. And in Machik's original teachings, these were specifically uh, mimayin, non-humans. These are the beings that she is expecting her students to go and feed. They're non-human spirits who are sentient beings, just like us, trapped in samsara. In later texts, people talk more about gods and demons and so on, but she makes it very clear that those spirits out there are not gods and demons. Gods and demons only exist in the space of your own mind. A demon is whatever hinders your experience of freedom. It's not some big, scary, goblin, ghoul figure you know, lurking in the darkness. But it doesn't mean that there aren't beings out there. It's just that they're not gods or demons. They're, they're just sentient beings. And what they need is not demonization or deification. They just need compassion and nourishment. Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh my goodness, you're brilliant. I have two questions. First one, I'm going to put it out, but I want you to answer the second, but I'm just going to put it out now so you don't forget, and I don't forget. How the fuck did you get to become so wise? So don't lose, <laughs> sight, don't lose sight of that one. Hold on to that one. But I want to know, I remember you speaking about this, like we we have no myths that speak about the 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 equity, the equilibrium, the the we are one with nature, kind of we are friends with nature, like that we have no stories that are kind of emphasizing that we need nature to thrive and we need we need each other. And but in this case, we need the unseen beings, the unseen forces of nature in order for us to uh to you know start to change the climate crisis and start to change ourselves too. And I and I love what you said with the COVID thing too. It's like, as we hurt the environment, uh, the, it's not necessarily the environment hurts us, but as we hurt the environment, we're hurting ourselves. It's, it's kind of this, you know, so can you speak about this and like, but focusing on the, on the, 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 the myth of poetic aspect that's been stripped away. That's why we have no imprinting for the importance of the sentience in plants and animals and all that. Did I make okay. sense with that question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, myths are how we make sense of the world. And, you know, the myths and stories, using myths in the in the sort of higher sense, because we use this word myth for a lot of things. And, you know, we'll use the same term for the most sacred and important stories in our lives that we use for something that we deem to be just a mere falsehood. And that's, it's quite 
sort of sticky and it's, you know, it's a little bit difficult to, to be clear about it because it's used for so many things, but that also sort of opens up the, the well of myth, you know, it brings us into the mysteries of mythology because it's really through myth that we make sense of our world, of our identities, of our societies, our relationships with others. Uh, It's in the sort of operating system of myth, so to speak, that the world that we experience becomes truly sensible and something that we can engage with dynamically. And we've relied on myths for hundreds of thousands of years as a species. You know, they've been at the core of our societies, the core of our our sense of identity, and also our sense of identity within a broader, more than human context. And I think it's really interesting. This is one of the sort of great tragedies of, of capitalism is what it's done to storytelling. Because today, we don't we don't see things that way. Myths remain the most important thing arguably, but the people that know that and are acting upon it are CEOs and marketing executives and political strategists and folks that want us to think a certain way for their benefit. It's not artists and myth makers and mystics and, you know, revolutionaries. The, the stories that we imbibe on a daily basis, we treat those as just commodities. You know, we'll watch a few Netflix series or a, a film at a time and then just watch it once and cast it off. We might read a book and then toss it away and open the next one. We think that all stories, especially fictional stories, are fundamentally interchangeable. But this isn't the case. The stories that we tell have a very direct impact on the possible ways that we can imagine our, our lives and our places in the world. They expand our our awareness. They give us different perspectives on life that can fundamentally change the way that we live and the ways that we see ourselves. So, you know, we have our sacred myths, you know, which were very... I mean, this this is my opinion is a lot of the more sort of central sacred myths that we tell, those aren't the same kinds of myths that arise from, you know, mystical revelatory experiences. A lot of those myths were very carefully constructed for political purposes. And this is very frequently the case, especially with the myths that get the most airtime, that are allowed to persist and that are used to, you know, exploit new areas and colonize new lands and so on. Uh, we have to be very wary of those myths. But there are deeper, more sort of essential and important myths that we could be telling and sharing with one another. And we could be creating a deeper sense of both human community and more than human community through them. Uh, We just, we really struggle with this idea. And that has a lot to do with capitalism. And this also, of course, is not universal. You know, with anything that we say about like, anthropocentrism, the Anthropocene, the epoch of humans, and so on, or man-made climate change, we have to obviously remember that there are a lot of people in the world today whose lives are nothing like this, who still live lives that are in deep engagement with the more-than-human world, who still identify themselves as part of nature, who still see non-human persons in the animals and plants and environments around them, and whose ways of living are fundamentally much healthier. They're much more integral and much more sustainable, but I I hate that word in a lot of ways, than what we have. So it's really not a like, oh, humans are evil. It's literally very specific human societies through history and in the modern world colonizing the the planet, you know, not just peoples, but environments, land masses, you know, natures. They've been systematically colonized by really broken ideologies, really morally bankrupt 
ideologies, but also em- empathically bankrupt ideologies. Because it's not even really a, a function of morals, it's a function of relationship. You know, for us, and unfortunately, Buddhism is also, I think, um, guilty of this to a certain extent. We've basically just determined that, oh, it's too difficult for us to change our lives to accommodate the welfare of non-humans. Therefore, we're just going to pretend like it's a non-issue. We're going to pretend like actually none of them are persons and they're all here just to serve us anyway. So it doesn't matter what we can do, what we do. We can still be good people while we burn down an entire forest or kill millions of animals or or do whatever we want to do. But it's just, it's a way that we justify things to ourselves. We make new myths in order to justify our pre-existing values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, after like being educated by you in early October, uh, like I said, before going in retreat, I wrote some poetry there and I was always just reflecting back and the fact that, you know, it's some of the scriptures say that the Buddha put his hand on the ground. That was the first thing he did as soon as he like woke up, right? As soon as he became the awakened one, also known as the Buddha. Um, and then through the poetry I wrote and I was just like thinking about it, I was like, you know, I think this the true sages, the, the true um, uh, awakened beings are the ones who are awakened in relationship with nature, because in nature we find the answers. We're able to see the cycles of of life in without the biases and without the prejudice. It, it, it's it's happening, um, and there's beauty in the decay, and there's beauty in in the weirdness and chaos. And we've just like you know took uh, this strange left turn and totally. and kind of you know got fucked along the way. So. What would you say for someone who's listening? How can can they reconnect to the unseen world, to nature, to like, what is the way to decolonize and eradicate and delete the, the um, you know, anthropocentrism poison that is creating so much of our, of our, of our um, problems in the world? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, Understanding where it comes from is an important part of it. You know, recognizing, much like, you know, when approaching addiction, we need to recognize the trauma that's underlying our responses. And coming to that sort of understanding, doing a sense of the sort of historical work to better understand the context, the causes and conditions, I think that that's really important. Uh, So, you know, Hopefully, the you know the book Unseen Beings that that helps to sort of fill some of that out and and help us understand why in the Western tradition as well as to an extent in the Buddhist tradition we've made some of the sorts of decisions about the nature of our world that that we've made. Uh, so that's an important step of it. But then, I mean, allowing ourselves to take seriously the the knowledges of animistic peoples. You know, this is, for the majority of our human history, for hundreds of thousands of years, we have been predominantly animistic, what we call animistic. But that's just the basic mode of being for beings on the planet. It's a basic acknowledgement that I have this experience. I'm looking at other beings that seem to be having similar, if you know, a little bit different experiences. They must be like me and we must be in relationship. That's a, you know, a fundamental mentality. It's a fundamental aspect of this worldview, which 
I mean, indigenous peoples around the world have been saying this and fighting on this basis for a very long time. They're still on the front lines fighting against pipelines and deforestation and pollution and industry, etc., saying this is why, this is the reason. We have to understand the reason. But in general, the sort of powers that be will just look at that and say, oh, well, that's sweet. These are their beliefs or these are their like, you know, this is their folklore uh, and oh, it's so cute. And we treat it as this whimsical sort of idea, but we don't take it seriously. And the reality is what they're saying is very, very close to what the scientists are saying now. And that doesn't mean that, oh, well, now that the scientists say it, then we can validate them. That's not what it means. It means that we fucked up for a very long time. We destroyed countless human societies and non-human environments on the basis of our, on our, of our fucked up premise. And now we recognize, we can recognize that we were absolutely wrong. So what do we do then? And I think a part of that is, you know, really paying homage and, and taking seriously and trying to elevate indigenous voices, not trying to appropriate indigenous customs or cultures, but to take their knowledge seriously as a form of very well-researched and hard-earned knowledge. So I think that that's very important. There's an aspect of decolonizing our spiritual practices, which I think is really essential. You know, just the basic idea, a lot of spirituality seems to just blindly fall into the trap of anthropocentrism. And this has been going on for a long time, from the re-enchantment movements of the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, you know, even like movements like Jungian psychoanalysis and like Joseph Campbell, etc. All of these, you know, sort of re-enchantment myth-positive movements tended to be very anthropocentric. You know, they, the determination that myth is basically just a reflection of what goes on in the human psyche. And you hear this in Tibetan Buddhism as well, usually from people who don't really know what they're talking about, but they'll say like, oh, you know, like the, the Nagas and the, the Yakshas and the Terong, etc. They're just projections of our, our afflictive mental states, you know, as if the entire world around us, all of the other beings that we share this planet with are nothing more than exteriorizations of the human experience. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be really careful of that, just like we have to be really careful, you know, as someone who tends towards more sort of like rationalistic approaches to, to spirituality, I suppose, or more, you know, sort of, um, I don't know if rationalistic is the right word, but more grounded approaches. Uh, you know, I think it's really important that we don't toss out the, the rituals and the ceremonies and the methods of engagement that have tied humans with non-human beings throughout these traditions' histories. You know, a lot of folks will say like, oh, well, tantras, you know, yidam practice is valuable and Dzogchen and Mahamudra are valuable, but I'm not going to do Naga Pujas. I'm not going to make offerings to the, you know, different nature spirits because all of that is just cultural baggage. That is colonial mindset. That is just this idea that, oh, you know, these aspects, we've determined that this is bullshit, even though we haven't. <laughs> so we can just, you know, get rid of that and forget about it and make everything about the human, which is ultimately what we want to do in the first place. Mm. So I think, you know, to, to sort of wrap up this answer, which I know is dragging out of it, um, 
I think that, you know, telling new kinds of stories is a, a really important part of that. You know, I say in the book, like, we need scientists to diagnose what we have going on, to diagnose our chronic illness. But we need artists and storytellers to make that diagnosis really understandable and sensible and to give us ideas about what we can do about it. What is our path to recovery? That's not going to be set out by climate scientists, by, you know, earth system scientists. That isn't actually what their job is. They can't really tell us what the social and political factors were that led to these problems. They certainly can't tell us what the philosophical and religious worldviews were that underlaid these problems. And they can't necessarily tell us how to get out of it. They can just tell us, you know, this is what's going on and we need to take that seriously. But we need to find new stories and new ways of being, new ways of imagining our world if we ever want to even sort of get out of this. Mm. And we're not going to get out of this. If uh, For us, success is sustaining our way of being right now today. It's not going to happen, and it can't happen. It, it would be disastrous if we simply tried to sustain our current models of exploitation. We need to undermine them. We need to replace them with new systems, a new lack of systems, perhaps, a more pluralistic, more than human approach to life on this earth. And we have all, we have a lot of these answers in the book, right? A lot of this material is there as an offering, as a sort of a, a you know, a guide to unlearn, decolonize, you know. Um, yeah. Good. I do. I sort of like you do in your book, I have an eight step <laughs> sort of process at the end based on Very the, good. the path. Um, and trying to really go beyond this idea of like good and bad, of it being a moral issue, because we're mm -hmm. not really compelled by morals. Mm -hmm. You know, you, I don't kill, I don't kill, it's no, oh, no, I don't not kill my husband because it would be bad to kill him. You know, I, I don't kill him because I love him and because I wouldn't kill someone, but mm -hmm. you like, you know, a neighbor, it's not that I don't kill my neighbor because it's illegal or it's immoral. It's because I care about their welfare. That's what compels us to act in certain ways. And we have to have that sort of approach with the environment. If it's just a matter of, you know, carbon sequestering and, you know, trying to, you know, crunch the numbers to get the perfect uh, amount of CO2 into the atmosphere and out of it, we're screwed. We, that's not how we function. We're not going to change our behavior based on just data points. Uh, we need to be compelled to care about the non-human beings that we share our world with. Wow. Thank you so much. And and just a, a little sidetrack here. Um, I wrote in Spiritually Sassy about the scave that I had to um, have like Spider-Man-like skills to go down 55 feet underground. It was a Naga cave and that shit was real. And I felt it with every single part of my being and no one can take that shit away from me. And there was five of us there and two of us decided not to go because the unseen forces were textured and felt and and as real as the seeing beings so just yeah, putting crazy. it out there <laughs> it's, it's crazy because we still there's an argument um joseph josephson storm he wrote a book called the myth of disenchantment uh and he, he basically argues that we were never truly disenchanted in the western sort of euro-american world that we just told ourselves we were and he's right to a point because a lot of people still believe in ghosts a lot of people especially today believe in extraterrestrials everyone's talking about the ufos in america and so on and it's interesting that these are essentially supernatural spirit paradigms 
for an anthropocentric, technocratic, uh, industrial, and largely racist world. You know, the whole ancient alien theory and the ancient astronaut theory and the fact that, oh, they must have helped the ancient Egyptians build the, pyra- build the pyramids because they couldn't have done it on their own, etc. But, you know, these sorts of ideas, they're, they're anthropocentric. You know, ghosts are, we just think that, oh, it must be dead humans. They are the only agents, supernatural agents in the world. If there's a, a shadowy figure in the forest at night, it must be a dead human. It can't possibly be a nature spirit or a naga or any of these other kinds of beings. And it's the same with extraterrestrials. You know, it's like any sort of unexplained phenomena that people have seen has been within the Earth's atmosphere. There's a lot of stuff about like glowing orbs of light in the skies or, you know, beings or, you know, vessels that seem to want to um, uh, disrupt nuclear testing sites or, or places where there are nuclear weapons. And we have the audacity to think, oh, it must be humanoid creatures from a distant planet who are so obsessed with humans that they've traveled here from millions of light years away to try to impact our behavior because they too know that humans are the most important. It's absurd. You know, it's just to to think that we are more willing to accept that reality than the possibility that there could be non-human spirits, nature spirits, who are concerned about the welfare of their own environment and are trying to stop us from blowing it up, etc. I just find it really... It's it's just funny, you know. It's it's um it's interesting to see the ways that our beliefs around the so-called supernatural have really evolved as a consequence of these you know anthropocentric ideas, you know, wow. even just the, the creation of of you know devils and demons and the figure of Satan in the Christian tradition, which was really coeval with the concept of the witch. Uh, you know, all of these ideas, they they really reflect this evolving and increasingly alienated mentality uh, of humans towards non-humans. Wait, 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 wait. Tell me about the devil part real quick. Like, explain oh. that a little for a second. Give me a, oh. like a bite size, because I'm like, wait, the, wait, 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 wait. Cliff Notes version. <laughs> With notes, Virgin. Okay. The devil in okay. The the devil was not a part of Judaism. Never a part of mainstream Judaism. Satan. There is a figure which is known as the Satan in uh, Old Testament materials in in uh, Jewish materials, but. It, this term is used to refer to adversaries, which are normally human. So it's an adversary or an accuser who is human. And then there is one instance of a divine bureaucrat under the service of Yahweh who is identified as the Satan. This isn't a devil. This isn't an anti-God. This isn't Satan as Christians know him. So not a part of the Christian tradition or Jewish tradition. It became a part of Christianity almost certainly through the influence of Zoroastrianism, which was the first major world religion to posit that there was an ultimate good guy God and an ultimate bad guy anti-god. So this idea uh, in Persian Zoroastrianism, this sort of got, you know, entered into the mix in the ancient Greek world, along with Aristotelianism and also Judaism, apocalyptic Judaism specifically, which is what Christianity is. And bada bing, you get this idea of a devil. But the early Christian devil was never really that powerful. He didn't have the same sort of role that he has. Most of the mythology surrounding him is absolutely not from the Bible. His name isn't Lucifer. That is never mentioned in the Bible. The name Lucifer appears once and refers to something else entirely. Uh, You know, he wasn't the fallen angel motif. All of that is apocryphal. It comes from non-canonical materials. It's not a part of the Bible. Yeah, right. They don't tell you this. So it's not a part of the Bible. What really changed things was 
I'm trying to give you the Cliff's Notes version. I'm so sorry. No, Basically, keep going. Keep going. Just go. Go off. The ancient Greek world, they had a lot of really fascinating stuff. They had a lot of fascinating materials from, you know, mystery cults, different magical procedures where you could summon different kinds of beings and do all kinds of crazy shit. These materials were largely lost from Europe and they went into the Middle East. They were translated into Arabic and they significantly impacted the evolution of various streams of, of Arabic and Persian knowledge when, when that was really the center of the intellectual universe, at least the center of uh, knowledge in Eurasia. Europe was a, a sort of backwaters. But eventually they got some of the texts back. They were translated back into or translated into Latin and people got to see them again. And they realized there's lots of cool shit here and they wanted to experiment with it. So around the same time as Machik Lapchen was teaching in, in Tibet, they were emer- these texts were emerging in Europe and people were starting to experiment with certain things. This caused the Catholic Church to come out and say, listen, you can't can't summon demons or the devil to do things for you because that's not how it works. He doesn't do that. He's useless. He's a hapless, false god. You just like you can worship him. He's not going to help you out. He's not going to give you magical powers. It would sort of defeat the whole like theological construct of Christianity if that were the case. So the Catholic Church was absolutely no way. But but and this is when it gets shit gets crazy. <laughs> At the end of the 15th century, um, there, the witch trials were starting to heat up. And this is because there were a lot of people that were practicing necromancy, supposedly, and the church had changed their mind and they started sending out these inquisitors to try to stop people from practicing witchcraft and necromancy. One of these inquisitors was named Heinrich Kramer, and he went to Austria uh, to try to deal with some alleged witchcraft in this place. And while he was in Austria, in Innsbruck, this woman named Helena Schubert approached him and she was like, you don't belong here. You're the problem. You need to go. Like, you're the one that's making this place unsafe and evil. You're the one doing the devil's work, not us. So he obviously hated her. He decided to take her to court, try to try her as a witch and try to execute her. And ultimately they dropped the case because the rest of the tribunal was like, listen, Heinrich, you are way too obsessed with her sex life for some reason, because he spent the whole court case talking about her being a whore. And then they eventually sent him back to Germany. They were like, you're done. She's set free. You're a mess. Go sort yourself out. So he went back to Germany, sat down in Cologne, and he wrote a book called The Malleus Maleficarum, The Hammer of the Witches. And this was the fucking book. This was the most popular book in Europe for over a century, centuries, next to the Bible, everyone was reading it. It became the gold standard for hunting witches in Europe. And in this text, he lays out a totally different version of who the devil is. And not only who the devil is, but who women are and what his relationship is with women. His argument was that, and these will sound really familiar, that the devil compelled women to have you know, um, sexual intercourse with him and have promiscuous sex in these sex rituals, and then to sacrifice their fetuses and babies to him so that they could drink the blood and use it as a potion to gain immortality and supernatural powers. This is literally the foundation of modern QAnon, but it was established specifically at the end of the 15th century, and it was popularized then in the centuries thereafter. About 60,000 people were executed during the witch trials in Europe, all mostly based on this exact text. Over 80% of the people that were killed were women. Most of them were older women. And the vast majority of them had nothing to do with like 
anything that we would deem witchcraft. You know, they weren't like the old, you know, Wiccan sort of like, you know, white witches of old. They were literally just women that men wanted to kill. So they tried them as witches and they told everyone that this is what the devil does. The devil seduces women and they are the weak ones who who can easily fall prey to his influence. So there was this direct correlation between the devil and women. And furthermore, a connection with non-human beings. A bunch of cats were also killed during the witch trials, like millions of cats. And any sort of involvement with, you know, um, like midwifery or herb lore, any sort of nature-based practices, a lot of like shamanic communities in the far north, the Sami peoples, they were uh, also burned at the stake along with their drums and their, you know, paraphernalia for being satanic. But this did, the thing that we have to understand is that this wasn't the way that it was before this point. This was really, a, a you know, early modern sort of early Renaissance era, late medieval invention, uh, which was entirely constructed on the basis of like misogyny and the assumption that nature and women are fundamentally sort of dominated by the devil and that it's man's job to go and stamp them out, burn the witches, kill the cats, get rid of nature because it's evil and, you know, stamp out the devil. Holy shit. Oh my God. I'm glad I, I'm glad I, I was like, please tell me about this because this is so wild. Wow. It's crazy. People really have to understand where our popular ideas of honestly, like the one mono God figure and the one anti-God figure, that model has a very specific history and we need to understand what that is to understand how it itself has colonized our ways of thinking about the world. Mm, wow. I need to have you back on this show. I'm already putting it out there. Invitations being put out there. Cause it's like, oh my God, I didn't even get to like talk about your past, how you got into this, you know, level of awakening and mystical experience. I mean, there's so many things that I wish we had time to talk about, but this is so profound. I am in awe, like, holy shit, you are a star. And I hope so many people get your book and listen to you because truly Thank I am you. gagged. To say it in my vocabulary, I'm fully guy. Wow, you're amazing. You're amazing. You're amazing. I feel like inspired and educated and just like really moved to to change my relationship to the environment. And, you know, I already have a relationship with unseen beings, but you've inspired and ignited something deeper inside of me. So thank you. My biggest takeaway from this episode is that it's like really just, you know, like prioritize your relationship with nature, prioritize your relationship with the unseen beings. And, and thank you so much. And everyone, unseen beings, how we forgot the world is more than humor. Human, I'm gonna say this again, unseen beings, how the how we forgot the world is more than human. Coming out this May, and you can actually go probably to an online sh- store right now and pre-order the book right now. Um, I know a lot of people have a little bit, have beef with Amazon, but hey, Amazon, pre-order the book there. Um, Put aside the beef for now, support this author, support this work. And when you pre-order, you're you're helping to make the book a success. And also, if if you're listening to this after the book's been out um, and you've bought the book, please write a review. Reviews are vital for the book to grow and become powerful and amazing, sustainable. And I know you don't like the word sustainable, but I use it a lot. Uh, And um, so anyways, 
Thank you, Eric, so much. Oh, thank you so much. It's really, yeah, it's been great to talk to you and I look forward to doing it again. Yes, please. Everyone, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. And if you have notes or thoughts or prayer requests or feedback, leave me a voicemail at 805-285-2331. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and stay in touch with me on Instagram or TikTok at Sa Simone. Um, don't forget we have new episodes every Tuesday. Love you. Bye.